there is no such thing as being behind. Everywhere you are, you are right on time. So if you're wandering in the wilderness right now, that's where you're supposed to be. There's some mystical way in which this is true. I feel, I feel pretty convinced of it because what I know is that no amount of nagging or no amount of convincing from some, someone else or whatever will ever convince you or me to change until something in us says, I want to change. Yeah, so true. I want things to be different. It's so true. I want to walk this way instead of that way. So until that happens, then you are where your heart's desire is leading you. What's up, damn givers? Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm Nick LaPara, your friend and the host of this podcast. I truly, truly, truly hope each and every one of you are doing fantastic. I don't know about you, but our home has been somewhat of a hospital for the last week. Most of us have been down and out with the flu, the dreaded, dreaded flu. And I have three kiddos. And when one kiddo gets it, it's really difficult to keep it from making the rounds. But we are pretty much healthy. We are on the mend. And I want to say to you, I hope you and yours are healthy and stay healthy. My guest today is just wonderful. Audrey Assad is not only a friend, but she's also a favorite artist of mine and ours, a favorite artist of ours. Our whole family loves her. If you stick around our house for any length of time, you will inevitably hear someone say, hey, Alexa, turn on Audrey Assad, and she will come on and serenade us in our home. Um, and you probably know that I don't listen to too much music outside of classical music, Broadway tunes, and some operas. But Audrey is one of those exceptions to that rule of classical music and Broadway tunes, because she's not a classical artist or a Broadway star. But she is one of those exceptions. Her music is spiritual and Christian in nature, and that has helped me and our family so much over the years in our spiritual journey. I'm describing to you Audrey the artist, but we don't actually talk much about her music in our conversation. We do talk about her father, a Syrian refugee, and his family migrating to the United States. We talk about her faith. We talk about pornography. We talk about refugees and immigrants and so much more. I truly enjoyed my hour with her and I hope you will too. Stick around to the very end so I can share an event that is coming up that you'll wanna be a part of if you can. So without further ado, this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast and here's my conversation with Audrey Assad. Audrey Assad, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. Me too. Let's begin with your story. I know, you know, the bits of your story that are out there. I've seen you tell your story in part in during talks, or I saw a six-minute video at one point. Um, either way, a lot of people listening probably won't know much of your story, and it'll play, it'll have several, there's several reasons why I want you to tell, because it'll come into play mm -hmm. later on. Uh, so begin by telling me your story as little or as much as you, sure. you want to. Yeah. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, and I live in the South, which is a whole other world. I've been here for 10 years in Nashville. I uh, grew up in New Jersey, lived there until I was 18, so I was really born and raised in the Northeast, and with all of its saltiness and Dunkin' Donuts, and uh, we were, I was raised in a very like charming New England town with Italian-Irish immigrants, it's a soccer town, so that was kind of my, my context, tiny Cape Cod houses, Shady streets, think like Manchester by the sea with a little bit less of an accent. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I grew up there 
And um, my mom's American. My dad is Syrian. So I'm half Syrian. Mm. I grew up in a multi-ethnic household. We um, had a lot of the food, the music, some of the traditions, you know, in part it was sort of woven into our lives. I had a lot of family in the area on my dad's side. That was a question I had was, did you have yeah. with all the Syrians around? Yeah. yeah, my dad's brother and his family and then uh, my dad's sister and her family and my grandmother were all local to me. So did they all come over at the same time? Time. Oh yeah, we okay. did a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I meant like when your when your dad came over from. Oh, oh yes, yes. they did. Yes, yeah. um, they all came here in 1973. Okay. So, my dad, his brother and sister, and my grandmother. They were my 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 dad was young. I mean, they were 18, but they they came over in 1973 from Lebanon. So they were refugees from Lebanon to the states, but they had previously run from Syria under cover of night. Uh, from a very volatile home situation and lived in Lebanon for two years trying to get refugee status to come here or to come anywhere. You can't really pick where you're going. But um, they did end up in New Jersey. And then my dad stayed there um, up until he moved to Florida 15 years ago. What was going on back then in Syria? Was it the same shit that's going on right now? Or no, what not was going, at all. Because most people didn't think about Syria before not at the last all. Yeah. few years. Nothing was but going on. back in the 70s. So, right. It was p- relatively peaceful then. I mean, I think entirely. So the, they have a unique story because um, what happened was that my my grandmother divorced my grandfather. He was an addict and a gambler and abusive and volatile. And when he when she divorced him in small claims court in Syria, um, you know, it was taboo, incredibly culturally taboo to do mm. that. And so her family basically disowned her for doing it. And so she and my my dad and my aunt and uncle were in dire poverty. Not only that, the reason they left Syria at all was that uh, my grandfather became an, a convert to Islam, which is not a problem, except that when he did so, he did so because uh, in that culture at that time, Islamic men hold custody rights over their children automatically. Mm. And he was uh, in deep debt from gambling and wanted to marry off my aunt to an to a creditor. So he, it wasn't a true conversion. It was a business deal sure. that involved my aunt. And my grandmother was, you know, adamant that that wouldn't happen. So that very night she packed the kids up in a taxi. And they went to Lebanon with no papers and then started, they were living, um, you know, they were homeless and they were trying to get some kind of protection from the state there, like asylum or whatever. So she was going to diplomats' homes, like finding out where they lived and knocking on their door, pleading her case, like a poor woman, you know. You know, we've all had a moment where someone walks up to us telling us their story all of a sudden and Mm. saying they need help. And I try to pause every time. I'm not always perfect about it because I think about her and how I knew her. And she was not, you know, whatever we think people are when they come up and start telling us about their their crazy story and what they need desperate help for right now. But she literally went to people's houses knocking on the door asking for help. Finally, someone said, okay, I think we can help you out. We'll figure something out. And so he ended up... Uh, being able to give give them refugee status due to their poverty and due to the duress they were under from her husband. Mm. And so 
there was some provision by the law for her situation as a refugee, so she became a refugee, and then they were sent here. Um, I never met my grandfather. He was murdered weeks after they left mm. for a gambling debt. So that's a very sad end to that part of the story. Yeah, no, seriously. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad that everybody's mm-hmm. safe and they, they made it over, yes. they made it here to yes. safety. Yeah, they did. And they, you know, they, if I can wax elaborate about my, um, elaborately about my dad and my uncle because of what they achieved here. I'm just, I'm astounded by it every time I tell the story. You know, they moved to New Jersey. They had nothing and no one and they knew no English. My dad stayed up at night watching Mork and Mindy and Nickelodeon and like learning television, uh, learning English from television. Mm. And um, they got jobs, my uncle and my dad, sweeping the floor at a handbag factory in, in um, Jersey City, New Jersey, which is, mm-hmm. I lived there when I was a kid. And um, my dad hated it. He hated that job. And he ended up, after a year of doing it, he called the man who had brought them over because there was a man who had uh, helped out with resettling them and getting them plugged into a church and... Um, this man had also uh, sponsored my dad. My dad was a sponsored child in Syria. That's how poor they were. They were in a sp- child sponsorship program. Yeah. And he was still someone they knew here, the only person they knew here, really. And so he went to him and he said, I can't do this job anymore. Like, I can't sweep the floor there. I hate the job. I hate the hours. I hate they're mistreating me, like all this stuff. Can you hire me? Can I? Do- I'll do anything, you know? And so this man says, sure, you know, I'll put you to work. And he has him just start filing papers, which is I think any of us who've run a business know it's not really a job unto itself, but I think he just really felt for my dad and was like, I'll help, you know, I'll help you learn English. I'll help you out. And so it was at an insurance agency. He was a state farm insurance agent. And so my dad, uh, started, you know, he put up the alphabet on the wall and started filing papers. And within two years, he was that agency's top selling agent. So he learned the business and, Really did well. And then within seven years, he was State Farm Insurance's top selling agent in the whole country for years and years in a row. So he really excelled at what he learned there. Um, He began selling for Mutual of Omaha and became their top selling agent in the entire country. So my parents were always going on these trips. I'm like, why are you going to Switzerland? You know, (laughs) they got all these trips because he kept winning. That's amazing. I mean, it really was. I I mean, the more that I didn't know that at the time, but when I realized later the extent to which he excelled, having no education to speak of past, he went to night high school, you know, while he was here, he was already 19 when he started, something like that, you know. How many years between watching cartoons learn English and becoming a top nine agent. That's incredible. Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. It really is. And then my uncle, meanwhile, is on his own trajectory from the handbag factory. He loved that. He loved what they were doing. So he learned how to use the machines and he started sewing. So he became a sewer and then he became the floor manager and then he worked his way up and up and up. And he ended up being um, a high level employee at Donna Karen, New York at first, just again, no education in the field, but just an excellent mind for detail and for construction. So then he was coach, coach leather hired him as their head engineer. And he was there for like 25 years, um, engineering. So every, every coach handbag that you would see on the shelf was something that the designer would design and then send to my uncle. And he'd say, yes, we can construct this or no, we can't. And here's what we need to change. And so just the two of them, they were so driven and so, Smart and so unflag- unflappable. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm in awe of that, you That's know. Amazing. 
And anything I've inherited from that, I'm so grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. It's pretty crazy. So anyway, that that's no, their that's, story that and that's, I, I went onto their story instead of mine, but yeah. it's still mine, you know? No, no totally. That, that's, that's where I want you to go because that truly is your story. Everything yeah. my parents and my siblings do is part of, it's oh, part yeah. of my makeup. It absolutely like it is. Not. It's the culture um, you're raised in, the air you're breathing as a child. And So you're most known for your music. Right. Um, when did that start for you? Mm-hmm. So you, was that pre the 10 years here in the South or when, when did all that happen? Yeah, so I I've always played and sung. It's always as honestly as long as I can remember. I've been playing piano since I was two, and I've been singing since earlier than that. And I was always musical. Um, I didn't start writing music till I was nineteen years old. So there was like quite a gap between my desire to do it for fun. And where I am now, um, I sure. ended up kind of just, I was raised in a church culture where women could not even sing in front of mixed gender rooms because it Whoa. was considered, yeah, it was considered to be like preaching, which would be like usurping the authority yes. from all the males, mm. from all the penises in the room. That's right. What denomination or background was this? Plymouth Brethren. Oh, yeah. Okay. Google yeah. it, everyone. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. I mean, I still read a lot about it. I'm very fascinated by how I was raised, even though I've had a lot of recovery to do in therapy, uh, which I've done a lot of. And now I'm able to look at it and with some compassion and, yes. you know, therefore myself as well. Because, as you know, it's like when you hate things about your past, you usually have some self-hatred mixed up in there. Um, so as I've dug out of that, I, I see how much it shaped me in certain ways. But one thing that I'm grateful for is that it was a singing tradition. Like, we had this beautiful, incredible practice of acapella singing, yeah, four-part yeah. harmonies. I learned to sing and blend there and you know, listen to other people while they're work, you know, singing as well. So it was like choir every, every meeting we were in. I read me, I learned to read music there. So, um, yeah, I, I, so I wasn't permitted to do anything publicly, you know, singing wise. And so when I was 19, I was just starting to get to that age where you begin to ask the big questions about, everything you've ever been taught. <laughs> um, some people do that in high school. I, I didn't do that. No, mine was later. Yeah. yeah. And so well, I was... That might be because we were taught not pro- to... Yes. The, the stakes were high. Yeah, I'm already teaching my little kids to, like, don't just take my word for it. Like, mm-hmm. and they're four, five, and seven. Yeah. You know, but I didn't get that. No. It was just don't question anything. Absolutely. Do Absolutely. Yeah. And the stakes were high. It was yes. like eternal conscious torment. Yes. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm definitely never questioning anything. <laughs> so until I was 19, I really didn't get any any nerve up to do that. And then I turned 19, and it's funny. Like, I had, a, I had an experience where I look at it now, and I think, oh, how religious, you know. But it was, it was real. There was something real that happened in my room at 1 a.m. one night, and I essentially experienced some kind of encounter with God's love that was different than anything I had experienced before. Um, And it involved uh, a lot of shame I was carrying because I had a pornography addiction. 
And that was something that, of course, I was not talking about to anyone. Because Definitely not in that arena. No, no, no. And I, I had a lot of shame about it. A lot of crippling, toxic shame about that. And I think a lot of people do when they experience something in that regard. But I, it was compounded by the whole environment, for sure. So I ran downstairs and talked to my parents about it in the middle of the night, like a little kid, you know, gone in bed and was like crying and I'm like, I have to talk to you. And I had this like deep spiritual experience of love and acceptance from God and forgiveness. And I don't even know if forgiveness is the right word. I don't know if I think God was forgiving me for anything. I don't think God forgives people, but sure. I, um, in that moment, I think I finally realized I cleared that cobweb out of the way and I knew what I wanted to do for the first time. I think I had really been a- not unable to sort of sense my own desires and my own, you know, dreams because I had this shame blanket just covering everything like a gravity blanket, you know? So when that started to go away, I suddenly realized, oh, I think I want to, I think I want to sing and write songs. And mm. so I started writing songs and that was that. I really never looked back. I had a job and I was in school, but I, I dropped out of school because it was expensive. I was going to a private college and I was like, this is so much money. I don't Good know what I'm, you. you know, so I left and then I was like, I'm just going to give music a try for one year and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, I'll come back. And I did. And I never, never looked back from there. That it was worked. really it. I really caught the bug and just kept going. I, yeah, I've never paused. Well, super side note. We, uh, we, well, we listen to your music all the time. And I'm not just saying that. We really, really do. Thank you. I'm very um, honored, it's, honestly. It's, it's always, it's always play, playing on Alexa. Alexa, play <laughs> um, I'm going back in a memory here. Um, I don't remember when you became, we'll talk about you becoming Catholic, when that yeah, happened. Sure. But I don't remember that when that was. But I do remember first encountering your music a decade, I don't know, a, a while ago. And people always, because I was still very much, I was coming out of fundamentalism, yeah. like Baptist fundamentalism, uh, 15 years ago. And they would always, people would always, when they would recommend your music, they would always caveat it with, but she's a Catholic. <laughs> because growing up in fundamentalism, it like oh, Catholics weren't Christian. Definitely like, not, not okay. Oh, we were taught that. Right? Absolutely. So they, they were always like, oh, her music is so good, but she's a Catholic. <laughs> or oh, this, but she's a Catholic. And I always remembered that. I never thought that way about Catholics. In fact, I'm very much I'm Anglo I'm Anglican, but an Anglo Catholic. Like I very mm. much teeter totter, and I never thought that, and I never understood that. But I just think that was so funny. It that is funny. I'm not oh, surprised by that at all. Um, but you brought up porn, so let's let's talk sure, about porn. Sure, let's talk about it. Um, I remember listening to your Q talk. Yeah, uh, you know the short like eight minute uh-huh. talk, and. So I, I want you to talk about girls in porn, sure. right? Women in porn, because you made it clear. And I, I mean, I had a, a long addiction with porn, you know, growing mm-hmm. up. I was also someone that never, very similar upbringing. No one ever had the talk. My no. dad was, love, God love him, but I love him. But there was never the talk there. No, there no. was never the talk like, hey, this Me is coming. No. Here's what you should know about. You know, these feelings are normal. None of that. No, Zero. No, no. I mean, nothing either. And so mm-hmm. at... At 16 years old mm-hmm. for me, which is way later than most boys, I finally, you know, encountered two things, pornography and masturbation. Like, yeah. I didn't even know those exi- I literally didn't know those existed until 16, right? And um, anyway, but people 
even still today, 2019, think it's primarily a dude problem. Right. Right. It's dudes that watch it. It's dudes look at it. It's it's for dudes. And that's not the case, is it? No. No, Let's not at all. This, because I think there's probably, I actually have more, there's more women that listen to this podcast than men. Okay. For some odd reason. Hey, gals. And hey, gals. <laughs> and so, so talk to them for a um, moment yeah, about Yeah, absolutely. So I want to be sensitive, even as I say these things, to my own changing beliefs about sexuality and what is moral? Sure. I don't have extreme, honestly, moral objections to many things anymore because I have not found that having a primarily moralistic viewpoint on everything actually works okay. to, mm. <laughs> um, to deliver people from things like addiction or from, from whatever it is that's plaguing them. Um, it's not really my approach. So I just don't want to say I, I really have tried in my own life to really get out of the sort of guilt, shame, moralistic viewpoint yeah. of things and look more at what brings wholeness. It can look slightly different for different people, right? So, But I will say this. I think science and psychology – are backing up in a rare instance of backing up what the church is concluding about something. Yes. Uh, very rare Doesn't instance. Very I think we're seeing more and more studies now <clears throat> about the effects of porn on the brain, on capacity for intimacy, things like that. P of sorry, of porn addiction, of compulsive porn usage. Yeah. Maybe not like one or two, ten times viewing pornography, but of a really heavy habit. It can really wreak havoc on. Uh, our ability and capacity, our ability to maintain our capacity to hold things like intimate relations with other people, uh, with real human beings in our in our room, you mm. know. Um, so pornography and masturbation are two totally different topics, yes. even though they do intertwine most yes. of the time. Yes. Um, so I'm just going to say this, you know, pornography is something that most most studies are showing that kids across all genders encounter by the age of eight or nine. At this point, it's it's so easy to find it. It's so easy to see it. It's it, it's it exists in many forms. It's like porn on Pornhub. It's naked text from your classmates. Mm -hmm. It's you know all of these different um, iterations of seeing a naked body of a human that's not standing in front of you and being titillated by it. That exists in mm -hmm. many 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 ways. And so, but kids across the board are experiencing it very young, with absolutely no preparation from in most cases and so because i mean i think about my four and a half year old and the idea of him seeing pornography in three and a half years i'm so terrified yeah you just said eight or nine <laughs> and i have a seven-year-old and now i'm sweating yeah we should be yeah because but but we should be but not not that much because really i think about it and i go you know what instead of feeling afraid the best thing to do with anything with our kids is to give them permission to talk to yes, us and 100%. ask us questions, not just permission, but model that that's yep. a good and healthy thing and that they're never going to be punished for it. You know, we can help them navigate what it is to be a sexual being mm. because they are a sexual yep, being. Very, we all are, yep. you know, and one thing I wish I'd been given, and I hear you say that you didn't get, I wish I had been given the, the celebration of sexuality the idea that, oh, you are a sexual being because you, you have a body. This is beautiful. This is so good. You know, I got I got some of that later, but it was more like protected at all costs. Don't become damaged goods. You don't want to be a piece of already chewed gum. You know, that's yep. not dignifying. Nope. That's objectifying. And so 
One thing I do try to celebrate is that I go, you know what? I am scared that my son's going to see pornography so early and potentially have a lot of problems with it because a lot of us have have had problems with compulsions and uh, feeling trapped by it, mm. you know. But one thing I celebrate is that I will be giving him uh, the gift of of just talking about it. <laughs> I'm like, yes. I, if you can just not be in isolation with something, it changes the entire situation. Yes. And so anyway, I, so girls and guys, you know, girls and guys, men and women, oh, a lot of us watch pornography. This is just a reality of our time. And I think it's been a reality f- for a long time. Uh, one thing I think is interesting about the narrative that it's only for men or men are the only people who have problems with it or are interested in it even is the patriarchal, subtle sort of patriarchal narrative that men are sexual and women are emotional, mm. you know, and as we know, that's incredibly reductive for both both sides. Yes. Yeah. And so I love just what I do in part when I talk about it publicly to break, to begin to break that narrative down, not just for women. They're like, you know, there are women out there that love to look at a D, okay, <laughs> or a V or whatever they want to see. But there are also men out there that are not, I mean, men are not animals yeah. in the way that they're painted. And I just, I hate that that's the narrative for little boys too. That And then little boys who aren't interested in that are like, what's wrong with me? You know, I don't care about seeing naked bodies. Is there a problem? Yeah. I, yes. I, I, you know, I hate, so I hate that whole binary narrative. I think it's just absolutely destructive and, and reductive. So I like to talk about that too quite a bit. Cause I think hidden in our commentary on these things in society is our, you know, our reductionism and our patriarchal views. Yeah, big big takeaways from what you just shared, which thank you so much for sharing all of that. It was super helpful, is that we should talk about it. Yes. Right? Like, let's have some wow. conversations yes. about it. Um, so that, that goes for parents, caretakers, that goes for friends, that goes for people in community with each other. Be, we can have much better conversation. We can avoid the compulsive addictive behaviors if we just talk about it and say, hey, this is something I have a proclivity towards. And I don't, I don't like it. I don't want it, right? If that's something that you don't want to have. And I'm with you on the science. Like I felt it in my own life. I have a wonderful, you know, wife and family and I've been married to my wife for 11 years. And I know that there have been seasons um, where there's been less intimacy because I've not been taking care of myself yes. and I've been seeking elsewhere, right? And we've had talks about that and we've had to work through that. And so I, I know the connections, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, but the longer I, you know, if, if there's no talking about it, mm-hmm and there's no bringing it to light, mm-hmm. then you do start believing all the lies about it, that men are animals and yes. that, oh, I sh- this is, you know, I'm not worthy to, to, to work or to have a family or to do these things mm-hmm. in the light mm-hmm. because of what I do in the dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, again, I mean, just removing the shame narrative out of it and mm. saying like, this is not a thing that makes you, it's not, doesn't make anyone um, bad that they're attracted to pornography or turned on by that. It's totally normal, you know? And I think just that is what keeps people, shame drives addiction and it compounds it. And so one thing that's really important to me and what I talked about at Q quite a bit is that I think the task of parents, the task of anyone who is trying to address this topic for children, for young adults, for anyone, you know, is to really call the shame out and say, this is not a good thing. Like your shame is crippling you. Um, and we've, we've contributed to that as a culture, shaming people for their sexual tendencies and desires. And I think that needs to stop. 
um, no one gets quote unquote free of an addiction to anything from by shame. Mm. It doesn't happen. Mm-mm. It's always the opposite. You know, when you go to go through AA and I've been through, I haven't been through AA, but I've done CODA, which is codependency anonymous. It's an AA based program. And one of the sort of main thrusts of the whole thing is, is really acknowledging your deep dignity and, you know, it's not attached to your actions. The you that underlies your actions is always worthy of love, of acceptance, you know, and of all of the things that we all deserve. And so, um, but that's not really how the church has historically handled the pornography thing, Mm-mm. at least not in my experience. And so my main thing is like, give kids permission to talk, model it for them, you know, don't intersect shame with this topic because it does nothing to free people. Wonderful. I love that. Okay. Catholicism. Sure. Um, here's why I want to address this. Uh, because of who I am and because a lot of the people that followed me pre this podcast, there are still a lot of people, there are a lot of people listening to this podcast that don't give a shit about the church or religion, but a lot of them do because they, mm-hmm. you know, they came along with me, right? And so many of the people, I'm not going to say everybody, but so many that are listening, it's been a rough three years. It's been a rough few years. Mm-hmm. Both, um, I say three because I'm pointing out just our this political mm-hmm. mess mm-hmm. that we're in. I'll just say mess, the G-rated version of what's going on. <laughs> but just the sex scandals and all this, and, and you know, it's this is not just with the Catholic. I mean, this this thing that came out last week with the Baptist Church, right? I mean, that was a huge, enormous shit show of what's been kept under wraps for years and years and years in the Baptist Church, right? But so, talk to me about your your journey as a Catholic and kind of where you are mm-hmm. today and why, if you're still in it, why you're still in it, why are you holding on for dear life? Um, yeah, just share a little sure. bit of that with us. So I became a Catholic 11, almost 12 years ago. I was coming out of a season, I was in a season of extreme upheaval in my personal life. Um, my parents' marriage was imploding. There was a lot of going on around that that was incredibly painful, and I was privy to most of because I was living at home, and I was just starting to really acknowledge my deep questions about existence and about Mm -hmm. God. And honestly, though, I was still very much a fundamentalist when I became a Catholic, and Mm -hmm. I think I can look back at it now with compassion but also honesty and say, wow, you you really became a Catholic in large part because you thought – that you didn't have to think for yourself anymore. You wanted someone to tell you what everything was and how everything works and what was true and what wasn't true. I was very attracted to this idea that, um, at least the thing I was seeing, you know, in my reading of apologetics and such, that the Catholic Church presents itself as the fullness of truth. Even though the Catholic Church has a really surprisingly open and tolerant, um, you know, at least high level viewpoint of other religions and of like how people get to heaven or whatever, you know, they're much more apt to say things like God's truth exists everywhere and it's through Christ, but not necessarily that person may not know that or or have, Mm. you know, that's how they, they have a little bit more of a universal Christ type view. But that wasn't the Catholic Church I was attracted to. I was very attracted to this idea that, oh, here are all of these like pronouncements and dogmas and doctrines I don't have to question anymore. I can just go, oh, someone else did all this work. What I now see is that I was really scared of what it meant 
that I was so I was I had so many questions and so many doubts and I wanted to avoid them. <laughs> I was like, please someone just tell me, you know. And so there was there was a lot there going on. That was a big part of why I was attracted to it, but there were some really beautiful things too. I was really attracted to the sacraments, to the physical encounter with the mystical, with the divine that the, the sacraments are, you know, or are, are thought to be. And I was very attracted to being part of something really old and really storied and really wide and rich and diverse, you know, compared to where I was yeah. raised, the Catholic church was like, uh, uh, what would I call it? I mean, it was like encountering Shakespeare yeah, and, yeah. uh, you know, African American thought and, it was just such a wide berth of thinkers and of streams of tradition. You become part of a much bigger family, right? A Absolutely. global family versus like mm-hmm. your little. Oh yes, and I remember thing. just loving um, going to mass in other countries and in another language, and still knowing where we were. Yeah, because the liturgy is the same; it has been the same for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. I I found a lot of deep personal comfort in that. Like it, it really contextualized my humanity in a way that I hadn't experienced up until that point. So there was some, you know, it was a mixed bag. I was, as we all do, we make decisions from our particular lens. And at that time I had a lot of unhealed <laughs> woundedness and a lot of fear, mm-hmm. but I was also attracted to some really beautiful things. And so I will say, I think I hit a point though, a few years in where the honeymoon period was over Sure. and I suddenly hit up against the wall where I realized, Oh no, the Catholic Church is full of human beings. Yeah, you know? that's right. It's not this like divinely guided. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm probably disenfranchising myself from some of my Catholic listeners as I speak right now. I think I took the idea that the Catholic Church is guided by the Holy Spirit and all doctrine and protected from error mm. very literally. Mm. I was like, yes, everything they teach is 100% absolutely true. Most of us who have been through any kind of being burned by a church mm, yes. can attest to the fact that um, that's not possible. Mm. When human beings are involved. Yeah. When Nothing we get, when we get in the mix. is pure, yeah. you know, in that way. And when we think it is, and when we finally encounter the reality, it can be a deep, deeply painful, damaging experience. Mm. And I think I, I experienced that in several ways. Um, and so now, fast forward a few years. Sorry, actually, I'm going to rewind. <laughs> fast forward and then rewind. I started deconstructing, mm. like many of us in this kind of age group, and outside this age group too, but a lot of people our age yeah. are doing and have done. I had to do it. It happened to me, I like to say. Mm. Some people in my life have been like, you and your deconstruction, you're always trying to tear things apart. I'm like, I don't think you understand I hit a crisis point where if I didn't tear it all down, yep. I was going to hurt myself or or get ill. It was bad. I was yep. I was psychologically exactly tormented, I've, I've you know. I told people the same exact thing. Yes. And so it was this or something like really drastic and terrible. I mean, honestly, I I don't know what it would have been, but I was hitting a point where I was like I'm like I'm I am not okay, you know. So I had to do it. And so I did it. And it took me a few years to feel like I had really sort of torn it all out, all the sort of scaffolding and all the furniture and all of the things that I had jimmied together to medicate my existential dread and like 
all of the fundamentalist, legalistic worldviews. And I sort of felt like I finally hit a point maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago where I looked around and I was like, it kind of looks like scorched earth now. I feel like I've, I feel like I've removed everything I can. So now I need to look around at the ground and see what's here. Mm. And all of this is happening, by the way, while I am basically a professional Catholic, a professional public Catholic. Yeah. So that it, it yeah, is. You're playing at like World Youth Day and like yes. you're, you're and very I'm public. And I'm feeling like a hypocrite, you know, because I'm like, I think people think I'm this, um, I don't know what, but I, I know from what they tell me sometimes that I've been their spiritual companion and I have been their guru or guide in some way or even just a friend like along the road and they feel so represented by me and I'm thinking like if we sat down and had coffee, I don't yeah. know if you would feel that way. Yeah. But I chose to press forward. I had a little voice in my head that said like you're still, you're being yourself. You'll get to a place where you can talk about this publicly like, but you have to do this work, you know. And so I looked around, I feel like a couple of years ago and looked in, and at the ground and saw little seedlings popping up and it turned out that I wanted to be a nihilist because it sounded more simple, to be frank. I was mm. like, wow, that would be great if it was just that black mm. and white, that nothing means anything. All I can do is ultimately do what I think is best, and but it doesn't mean anything. Mm. That found that felt like a relief to me <laughs> after years of everything meaning everything. You know, I was scrupulous to an extreme where I was like, every little thing means so much. Like it means it means heaven or hell. It means right or wrong. It means God's love or God's hatred. It means, you know, the stakes were so high for everything for me for my whole life. And so the stakes going away felt like a relief. But I kind of meandered there for a while and found it to be pretty bleak, to be honest. So mm. I'm like, oh, now I don't know if I even love my kids or not. You know, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Is yeah. love real? Yeah. And I'm like, now I'm, now I'm laying awake worrying about that. And so I decided that I wanted to practice faith hmm. in some way. I knew it wouldn't look like what it had looked like before, but I really wanted it. I felt drawn to it. I felt compelled by it. I felt drawn to Jesus. I felt drawn to the Christ. I felt drawn, well, frankly, to many expressions of spirituality. Um, it called to me from across the, you know, the scorched earth of my like my inner landscape. And so I started to reorder. I had to do the disorder season. Yep. And now I'm in the reordering season. I'm still a Catholic. I mean, I'm a baptized and confirmed Catholic, so I'm still a Catholic. Mm -hmm. But I have absolutely expanded my understanding of what it means to be a person who like walks with God. Um we can talk further about that. But yeah, that that is where I stand now. Do you um would others consider you still where you are? <laughs> like are you still in? Like, I'm not how, sure. How, yeah. I'm not sure. I would hope so because I would hope that anyone of goodwill. Yeah, that's a, that's a sore spot for me, to be honest. I, I sort of don't. I, I, I used to uh, measure my standing or my belonging by whether other people thought I belonged. I would call it a type of spiritual codependency when you sort of find yourself. Um, holding out your heart and your, your thinking, your beliefs, your fears, your, you know, whatever to a bunch of people and saying like, is it okay? Can I be here? Am I allowed? Am I in? I feel like a lot of spiritual communities are like that. Yep. Um, your orthodoxy is like uh, your belonging, you know, do you fit 
do you toe the lines that we have decided are the most important? And if so, then you're one of us. And if not, then you don't belong here. Um, that is a very flipped upside down model from what I think Jesus modeled. So it's like behave and believe in order to belong. That's what we practice typically. I don't think that should be the metric. Yeah. So I don't know if I, I don't know who would say I'm in. I know a lot of people already consider me heterodox, heterodox at best. Yeah. Heretic at worst. Yes. And I've just decided not to care. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is not, I, they don't sleep in bed with me at night and they don't live in my conscience and they don't, you know, they can have their opinions and they're allowed to, but it just doesn't have a bearing on where I go and what I do. What I think is important about what you just shared is something that I went through, which was the deconstruction happened. And I'm very grateful for that. It, like you said, it had to happen. It, for me, it was either deconstruct or leave the whole fucking thing. Like just, right. le just leave. And I didn't want to. Similarly to you, I'm very attracted to Jesus. I'm very attracted to what he wants us to do in the world. I think he's behind it all. So leaving it all was not, it was an option, but it wasn't really an option. But I had to reconcile so much of what was happening. I had to figure out how does this all fit in? Like, I understand that I'm not going to, not everything's going to make sense, but everything doesn't make sense right now. Mm -hmm. Like nothing makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I've got to deconstruct. For me, the important part was reconstructing. I didn't want to stay deconstructed. So many of my friends have deconstructed and never reconstructed, and that's f like that's fine for them if that's where you need to stay. But for me, the important part was as soon as everything was deconstructed, to maybe not start reconstructing right away, but to start thinking about the reconstructing. Like, okay, I'm I am I am a house down to the studs right now. I was a pretty like rickety old house. They took me down to the studs. What are we gonna do with this? I think this house still has good bones. What are we going to do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, that mm -hmm. was super important to me to like start. Okay, let's start shaping the house again. Yeah. So, I love that. Yeah. I think everyone's path truly is different. That you, some people I think need to be wandering in the wilderness. I honestly. Yeah. And, and it, there, this is the thing I have learned. There is no such thing as being behind. Mm. Everywhere you are, you are right on time. So if you're wandering in the wilderness right now, that's where you're supposed to be. There's some mystical way in which this is true. I feel, I feel pretty convinced of it because what I know is that no amount of nagging or no amount of convincing from so someone else or whatever will ever convince you or me to change until something in us says, I want to change. Yeah, so true. I want things to be different. It's so true. I want to walk this way instead of that way. So until that happens, then you are where your heart's desires lead you, right? And it's like, I don't mean that to say that everything is great and everything everyone does that's self-destructive or whatever. Like, it's not what right. I'm saying, but I think... There are healthy and unhealthy versions in there, but sure, still. But I think the, that... The, the truth is still there. Yeah, the, you cannot go anywhere that your, um, your you <laughs> doesn't want to go. You know, your deepest you. Mm. Your, your true self and your shadow self are wrestling inside you at various... With, to various degrees at all times. And I just think you reconstructing and you reordering and me doing that, it only happened when our true self said, I'm ready. And there's no amount of proselytizing or nagging that anyone else can do um, to make that happen. And some people, they deconstruct and they really need to walk around for a really long time without building anything else. And that's their path. 
I just have no, I don't think you do either, but I have no investment anymore in uh, emotionally or otherwise in changing that about anyone, you know? 100%. Um, that never works for me. Nope. <laughs> when someone's like, I'm so stressed by your... Yeah. I mean, I get that a lot. Like my Instagram DMs, I'll give you an example. Please I'm not do. calling anyone out by name, okay? But I posted a video yesterday or two days ago uh, at the time of this recording, uh, of myself at a uh, Michael, a Gunger show mm-hmm. for those who aren't familiar, you know, Gunger oh, is a band that has been just through the ringer in terms of people being really scared about what they believe or don't believe. And they had the whole deconstruction phase and now they're reordering and they run the liturgist podcasts and it's whatever. So there's this whole connotation to it for a lot mm-hmm. of Christians because they used to understand what they believe. And now they're like, what do you even believe about it? You know, yep. anything. Yep. And, uh, I posted a video of being there, just a video of them singing beautiful things, which is one of my favorite songs still. It's amazing. And um, got a few DMs from people, and they were like, hey, <laughs> um, <laughs> quick question. It, very obviously from a stressed place. You know, he said that he believes the resurrection is metaphorical. Do you believe that too? Hope you can answer that for me. And I'm thinking, I, I have so much. I don't, it didn't make me angry. I just thought it's amazing how stressed we can get by what other people think. Yeah, you being at a show, doing your own thing in Nashville, yes. Tennessee, stressing this person out in Milwaukee. Yeah, they're they're wherever. laying in bed somewhere. Right. Truly feeling worried. Yeah. Worried, or anxious. Annoyed, anxious, the whole thing. And I thought, I have done that so much in my life. And I'm done. Yeah. I have chosen a different way. Like I choose uh, at least to try to practice um, detachment. From what other people choose, believe, think. And I mean that I have to. It causes so much stress in our lives when we uh when our wholeness and our peace is predicated on other people. God, you only live with yourself, you know? And so that was just it was so funny because I thought, yeah, I mean, I've done that. I, I'm not gonna be angry about it that this person is feeling this stress, but I wish they didn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, it really is. So you're a public person. I'm going to bring a few things kind of into the ring real quickly. So you're a, you're a public figure. Um, you're, you have the Catholic background. You have the um, – your dad is a Syrian refugee background. Your, families, your family are Syrian refugees. And you've said before that it wasn't until the last season of your life that you actually thought – about that, right? Because because you know, even going back in your story, they didn't leave Syria because of a war, you know, a war or ICE or whatever. It, it was under different circumstances, and so it was only recently that 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 had like a resurgence of importance right. in your life. And I think there's very obvious reasons why. What has the last few years meant to you? Um, this new administration, um, the the refugee ban, the the different things that have been happening, the rising intolerance toward uh, these amazing people that are coming to our country to seek a better home, to seek refuge, something that our country has always been about. But now there's this kind of like new, newfound uh, anger and angst and uh, toward these people that need to come here and want to come here, right? For more, for very obvious reasons. What's the last few years been like for you? I've observed, you know, your social media presence, the things you've chosen to uh, speak up about. Um, yeah, what is the last? Just tell me about the last two or three years. Just, just what is what has it felt like? What mm. have, what do you what do you care more about now? 
Um, what are you more excited about speaking up about those sorts of things? Mm-hmm. Well, firstly, and I hope this doesn't come across as me correcting you because it's not intended that way at all. I no, want to, but I want to deepen. Yeah, maybe what you said. Yeah, your question even mm. because uh, the Syrian civil war broke out about seven years ago. Mm. So that was when I really started to become invested in Syrian American uh, okay. issues. I had always identified as an Arab, but because I'm white skinned, I have passed as white my whole life in terms of what, uh, and I say passed as white because what I mean is I passed as what other people consider to be white, which is a very, it's a whole other topic, but yes. um, white, whiteness is a part of my experience, a, hard, a huge part because of my skin color, you know? And all the privilege that comes with that, um, I enjoyed that my whole life. Didn't even, wasn't aware of it because that's what, how whiteness works, right? So you sort of benefit from something that you can't see or feel. Other people can see or feel it be, uh, because they don't benefit from it. Mm. But I've always identified as an Arab. And it's always been part of my life and part of my culture, part of my cuisine, part of you know how I eat, how I gather, how I listen to music, how I you know think about the world that's part of my identity and part of my experience to a really deep level. But when the Syrian civil war broke out seven years ago, so I guess uh, that would have been during Obama's presidency, I started to speak up more about my Arab identity and my ethnicity, which interestingly with the last name Assad, you would have thought more people would have been aware. They made the connection, right. And they really weren't Hmm. until I started talking about it. And when I started talking about it publicly, I was treated to a lot of people's um, opinions about Arabs as a, as a, as a quote unquote race. They're not really a race, but um, I think all of this angst and anxiety and fear of Arabs has been here for a long time. This is not new. What is new is the sort of cultural awareness of how deep that runs. It's, um, it's not the same as the racism that we see from whites um, about black people, mm. but it, uh, there are some parallels, which is that this administration has not birthed these things. It has certainly emboldened people, um, and I saw that happen, but before Trump was ever in office or running or a, a thought in my mind, you know, um, I was already experiencing people's uh, mm. bigotry towards Arabs. And it was astounding to me, but it was a great wake-up call because as I woke up to that, as a person who's half Arab, I started to awaken to the general situation in our country of racial disparity, racial injustice, racism, whiteness. Um, all of that came in tandem with my awakening about how people felt about Arabs. So I'm grateful that I experienced it. But it wasn't Trump that that brought that up for mm. me. I was, you know, Obama was president and doing drone strikes in the Middle East. And mm. he was very yeah. hawkish, to use a word that people love to describe Hillary as. Obama was quite, uh, shall we say, active in the region in ways that I think were very problematic. And uh, I loved him. But that was one thing that was really difficult. Yeah, it's problematic. Yeah. So, you know, the U.S. in general has a problematic history all over the world (laughs) in our interventions and colonizations and occupations and all the things that we've done. The Middle East is no exception. So um, I think the last 
specifically, though, since Trump became president, as your question actually mm-hmm. asked, <laughs> what have they been like? Ooh. I can vividly recall the moment he was elected. I think a lot of us have stories like this. I was with my friends and my husband, and we were sitting in a room and just honestly, we were sitting there as the night wore on, just quietly crying because we realized it wasn't just like, oh, we real there's a new thing happening. We were like, oh, this is what has been happening in our culture. Mm. And it is being manifested like the cap on a mushroom. Mm. These these roots, this the mycelium that like run the forest, that the mushrooms have these like root systems that mm. like intersect all over and they go miles long. That is what that, you know, I think we were seeing the mushrooms sprout out of the ground. But the roots had been there. Yeah. Running the forest yes. for a really long time. And so that was the moment we really, I at least, there was a moment for me where I thought, I'm now seeing the fruiting of something in a new, I don't want to say in a new way, because I think, you know, black people have been experiencing this since 100%. they were brought here yeah. against their will. Yeah. This is not really new, but there was something that um, Trump brought <laughs> that felt different. That felt, at least to me as a white person, it felt it felt like a really big wake up call um, to the situation. And in a way, I'm grateful for that awakening because I realized, okay, well, one thing that Trump's presidency has done has it has woken a lot of people up that were yeah. sleeping. Mm. And I'm sad that it took President Trump to awaken us or to awaken people, but I'm glad they're waking up. Yeah, Jeremy Cowart and I have talked about this quite a bit. That the one good thing. Mm-hmm. that has come out of the last few years is that we're now talking about the stuff, right? So I think back in the you know 50s and 60s civil rights movement, you know, Ruby Bridges single-handedly desegregating schools, walking in, little girl, you know, the iconic picture and all the MLK and every, Rosa Parks, everybody. After that, I think a lot of people assume racism was gone. That they went to sleep. That they went, yeah, they're just gone. And it's like, yeah. no, now these people, mm-hmm. they just stopped talking about it. They were secret. They were still talking about it in, around their dinner tables and out at the barbecue and while they're smoking and drinking. They just weren't doing it in public anymore. And what Trump did was he gave people permission to what they had been sort of hiding and keeping undercover for decades. Uh, he They now had permission to sort of yeah. do it again. Talk about it. Yeah. Because, you know, so many people are like, well, we don't have a politician in the White House anymore. So he's just speaking his mind. And it's like, well, that's not good. Like, I know how (laughs) shitty of a person I am. Like, if I always, like, honestly, I know how, like, I'm just trying, just like everybody else. If I said everything that my brain was thinking about, Mm. and if I did everything my heart wanted to do, that would not be a good reality for anybody. Well, let's, let's differentiate for a second, though between your heart and your shadow self. Because what we're talking about with Trump is that, I don't know, I'm not inside his body. Sure. My sense about him is that he is run by his shadow self. His true self is deeply hidden somewhere, Mm. way down under all of the shame and the ego and the machinations of the ego that we all experience, you know, to different degrees. This is a man who is a shadow self running a country. Mm. I'm not going to say other politicians aren't partially that too, but there is a degree to which Trump exhibits that that's scary to me. It's not just that he's speaking his mind or that if you spoke your mind all the time, that would necessarily be dangerous. I think it depends on what is running you, you know? And so I just, I felt like a little nudge. I'm like, I don't want 
anyone to ever disparage their heart because I think their heart is actually their, you know, at its deepest level. It's Got their it. true self. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I think that uh, Trump's heart is deeply buried between <laughs> and beneath a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I would never. And in what I have a lot of mercy for him as a as an individual. I am not excited that he's a president, but I wish that he would love himself. But you know, that's a whole thing. Anyway. Yeah. No. 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 Totally. No. I understand. I, I. I. I get that. I feel. Ever since like six months ago, I felt sorry for him. I felt bad for him way more than I've been angry mm-hmm. at him. Yeah. He's got to be tormented. Like that's not a good. I hope so. That's not I a feel good like, life. I feel like there's a point where some people get beyond the torment into just pure like numbness to their pain. And I wonder if he's there. I don't know. Yeah. I really hope that we unseat him though. I yeah. don't think that he is a good president. I hope that he doesn't die the way that he is today. Yeah. You know? Yes. Um, and I'm deeply uh, pained and grieved over the, over the suffering that he has uh, through his presidency brought about for especially minority communities. Like I said, most of those things, all those things probably aren't really new, but there's been an uptick Mm. we can see Mm. in hate crime and hate speech. And so it's deeply painful to acknowledge, but I hope that like you said, and like I do believe that, that, that those of us who are awake will mobilize. Yeah like light a fire under our asses and go, you know, I'm going to be more active as an individual yeah. and as a public person yeah. in the next election. And I'm, you know, I'm going to try my best to help turn the tide a little bit. Um, hopefully in a more sane direction. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. We've talked about so much and how do you, as a person who is changing and transforming and deconstruction and reconstruction and um, all of these changes in your life and career, how are you in this sort of volatile season of you know living in America with all of your the baggage and the good, the bad and the ugly, how are you channeling that into uh, making the world better? Mm-hmm. You know, not trying to be the savior, not trying to, I've got to do it all because there's so much shit to do and it's overwhelming. And it literally makes me sick when I think about the things within a stone's throw of this building we're in right now that need to be fixed and could be fixed and we need to go after them and I can't do it all. Um, so in your own way, how do you, how are you doing that? How do you plan on doing that? I just want you to, don't, you don't have to come up with anything crazy. Just like, I want it to be an encouragement to sure. those listening. Well, one thing that pops to my mind and immediately is that... It would be really easy for me to hide in my whiteness because I have pale skin Mm. and say, like, you know what? I'm tired of experiencing people's attitudes about Arabs. I'm just going to stop talking about it for a while. And I, you know, I take breaks. (laughs) I can't always be under the onslaught. Like, everyone needs to remove themselves for a minute from the um, bigotry that they're experiencing. And this is all, you know, like I said, relatively new for me. It's been a few years, it's been seven years that I've really been experiencing it. Um, so I take breaks, but I really feel called to be publicly Arab, you know? It's so funny because my skin is light. My dad's skin is fairly fair as well, even though he's 100% Syrian. And a lot of that's a, it reveals a lot of even just the, the ideas and stereotypes people yeah. have about Arabs just yeah. to even talk about that mm. because there are Arabs with red hair and blue eyes. And, right. you know, Rami Malek won um, the Oscar. 
mm-hmm. last night last at the time night. that we're recording this for best actor. Mm-hmm. He's Egyptian. Mm-hmm. He has, you know, blue green eyes and I, he was standing up there talking and I was, he's just, not your stereotypical. No. And yeah. I was overcome with emotion watching him and his speech was so beautiful. If you haven't heard it, please go look it up. Um, but I was looking at him and it felt such a swell of love for my people. Yeah. And for, I was sitting there looking at his eye color and thinking like people really have one picture of what Arabs look like, what they do, what they believe, what they sound like. And you see it in all of the movies and the, you know, uh, the, the TV shows about terrorism and, um, the Arabs in every, if look most movies made in America and Hollywood that involve Arabs involve one, (laughs) picture of what people it's like yep. a one car- caricature of what people think Arabs are like and so watching him speak I felt so overcome because just by standing there I think he broke some walls down I mean there was something Beautiful. so momentous about it for me so one thing that I feel really called and compelled towards is being publicly Arab being a face that people can look at and I hope that just by standing out here you know as myself with my last name and with my heritage and with my uh, advocacy for Syrians and for Arabs and for refugees in general, I hope that by doing that, by being myself publicly, that I will break walls down. And even if it's small ways in individual you know, people and their perceptions, it's important. I, so that, that's the biggest thing that pops into my mind is that I have embraced my identity as an Arab in large part to do the work of helping to humanize and, I don't know what I, to dignify, I guess, Arabs in people's minds and to break down stereotypes and the walls that people put up around those stereotypes. So um, that's how I give a damn every day. That's beautiful work. You could easily, again, fair-skinned, you could easily hide. You could easily just kind of blend in, make your music, not ruffle any feathers. Um, you also wrote, uh, you, you shared a song on your Facebook, the other, maybe you shared it on other platforms, but Walking Your Way, mm-hmm. which I oh, thought yeah. was, everybody who's listening now should go Facebook, Adria Saad, look for it. You described it's on SoundCloud it as, as well. Yeah, and SoundCloud. You, you described it as a prayer for all the mamas who have had their children separated from them at the borders of our country. A mother's love is fierce, enduring, and never gives up. Was there any particular thing that happened that caused you to write and then release so, that? So, you know, it was actually months ago, um, David Gunger, a friend of mine who's in the band called The Brilliance, wrote to me and, they and said, brilliant. they are Sorry, no, they're, they're really incredible. Good, they're um, good. He wrote to me or texted me or something and was like, you know, we're working on this record about dreamers because of the DACA thing mm-hmm. that was going on. Do you have any songs that might make sense in a collection like that? And I didn't. And this song doesn't really either because it's not really about that, you know, but I... I hung up the phone or what I think we were talking on the phone. I hung up the phone. I pressed the hang up button. That's right. <laughs> and, Put down the receiver. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have moments rarely as an artist where it feels like a song is delivered to you. And I just had a shiver of inspiration. And this is the song that happened in a very brief amount of time, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And I was just, Weeping because I think what I was experiencing was some kind of channeling of, in some way, the suffering of these mothers. Mm. Now, when I posted that song, I knew that I would be encountering and being treated to the opinions of a lot of people about brown people. It's interesting how um, 
unhuman they are to some mm -hmm. in our country because I made no political statements in my post. I didn't say anything about Trump because you know what? Obama deported, I think, more people than yes. any president before yeah. him. And I've said that publicly as well. I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with his um, movements in that area. I didn't say anything about Republicans or about white people, you know, in my post. I posted about empathy mm -hmm. and received an, a glimpse into a lot of people's anger and bigotry and hatred, honestly. And that's just educational because it just, it reveals so much that when you, you post about a mother and her grief, you, you hear people shouting things back at you like, they're using their children as human shields. They did this to themselves. They need to go back and fix their countries. We don't need them here. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I, you're responding to things I didn't even say. Nope. And so it reveals so much that by me, I'm only posting a song that empathizes with them. Um, so out of anything I ever post about, in all of my controversial opinions <laughs> for the evangelical world anyway, um, nothing gets a much, as much of a rise out of that section of the people who are following me, for whatever reason they're still following me, um, as, as immigration and refugee issues. It's really interesting and painful to note, but it's something that, again, I sort of feel called and compelled to keep doing it. It's like I can, I hope, from a place of what I hope is, is relative wholeness and humility, continue to be obvious about the suffering of the brown <laughs> and the black and the marginalized in the ways that my inter my identity intersects with those communities and even ones that you know I that my identity doesn't totally intersect with but that I can lift up voices from those communities and and amplify them mm -hmm. to the people who are following me that feels really important to me uh, it feels like my life's work in some ways I mean I still value I, I love the music I think. I'll always do that, but I can no longer do it apart from being publicly Arab and from amplifying black and brown, brown voices. Um, so yeah, it, feel, it feels like my calling in some way. Will everyone go listen to that song um, and don't leave a shitty comment, please. If you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're probably not going to go leave probably a shitty comment. Probably not. Okay. Many, 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 many years from now, you are going to die. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to give you a eulogy. So in front of your family and kids and friends and the people that have loved you and worked alongside you, and they're all in a big room, and we're celebrating and mourning your life, and I'm giving you a eulogy. Uh, what do I say on that day? What do you say? Yeah. Yeah, what do, you, what, what do you want your life and legacy to be about? What do you hope that I would say, rather? I hope that you say that she mothered the world. That's it. Okay. Short, powerful eulogy. And then we'll go do what party? We'll yes. we'll have a we'll have a celebration. Yes. She mothered the world. Mm, I hope so. I hope to do that. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was super fun. Thank you for having me. Dear friends, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast today. I hope you are encouraged by my conversation with Audrey Asad. Here is today's takeaway and challenge for you. Please make sure the people in your life feel 100% welcome to be vulnerable and authentic around you. Shame is a horrible and controlling tool, and people 
are the best versions of themselves when they don't feel shame and when they do feel love and acceptance. The best version of ourselves is required to be damn givers because damn giving is hard and it requires time and energy and emotions and all of that. And as we give ourselves to the tasks at hand, you know, the different ways we are loving and caring for the world, we cannot be weighed down by shame and guilt. So make sure the people around you feel 100% welcome to be vulnerable and authentic around you and around your community so that you can do your best damn giving work. I also wanna mention that if you're in Middle Tennessee, specifically Nashville around on March 8th, you need to go to a show hosted by Audrey Assad and another artist named Fernando Ortega. This night is primarily about Audrey and Fernando sharing songs and stories about their heritage as they explore how Christians can be peace bearers for those in need of refuge. This night will benefit my friends at Preemptive Love Coalition. If you've hung around me or the Let's Give a Damn family for any length of time, you'll know that I love Preemptive Love Coalition. Jeremy Courtney, their founder, has been on my podcast in the past. Go listen to that episode. To find out more about this show and to buy tickets, go to Audrey Assad's Facebook page, and you can also find the link in the show notes of this podcast. If you want to know more about this podcast conversation or about Let's Give a Damn in general, go to podcast.letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing on this show, tell a friend. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production and execution of this show by visiting patreon.com slash let's give a damn. That's patreon.com slash let's give a damn. We've come to the end. This podcast was edited and produced by the incredible Chad Snavely. The music is by the also incredible Propaganda. See you all next week. Peace.